0: Hello. Welcome back to the Female Founder World podcast. It is Jasmine. I'm the host of the show. I'm the creator of Female Founder World. And if you're new around here, we are the podcast that dives into quick case studies to figure out exactly what strategies and tactics and tools and really actionable insights that you can just copy and paste into your business now to drive traction. Today, I'm chatting with Natalie Holloway, who has actually spoken at two of our events, but has never been on the podcast. And we've kind of been like trying to line this up for a while because she is an absolute star. She's building Bala, also known as Bala Bangles. If you're at all in like into fitness and beauty, I feel like you know what they do, but there are those like ankle weights and hand weights that you've seen all over Instagram and TikTok. They have really reinvented the idea of this like retro 80s kind of weight into something that is really modern and sleek and beautiful. Natalie worked in advertising before she started the business with her then boyfriend, uh, now husband. They've been bootstrapping. They did get around I think it was nine hundred thousand dollars uh, from Shark Tank two years into the business, But aside from that, it's been completely bootstrapped in the first year. I think they did around two hundred k, second year two million in revenue. By year three, they did $16 million in revenue. A lot of that was fueled by you know, COVID growth and the stay-at-home fitness kind of boom that happened then. But there are some really tactical things that Natalie and her team have been doing to move the business forward and lots and lots of lessons about how to expand into retail, into Amazon, and how to pivot your e-commerce strategy now that Facebook and Instagram ads are not the be-all and end-all. All right, let's get into the show. Don't forget to share this on Instagram stories. Drop us a five-star review. Anything you can do to help us spread the word, honestly, it makes such a big difference and you will absolutely make my day as well. You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Garnsworthy. Natalie, welcome to Female Founder World. Thank you. So excited to be here. We've had you at like two events. I can't believe you haven't actually been on the show yet. So it's great to have you so that all of our like OG podcast fans all over the world can get the great advice you've been sharing
1: at the events. Yes, love the events. They're so good.
0: Okay, for people who don't know Bala, what's the what's the deal? What are you guys building over there?
1: So Bala is a modern fitness brand. We essentially create and reinvent old school products and um, create new ways to work out. And we really try to inspire people to move through our products, both with making them more functional and really design led. So, you know, we always say our products are designed to be left out. So if like, your yoga mat and your weights and your foam roller are kind of left out because they're aesthetically, you know, in your apartment or your house, you're more likely to use them versus just like hiding them under your bed. So it's just like a way to also infuse work, working out into your everyday lifestyle.
0: I love it. Okay. Talk us through the story about how you came to the idea. I know that you were like on a retreat somewhere and you had this idea with your husband. Talk me, talk me through what, what happened.
1: Yeah. So my husband and I, we met at at an ad agency in LA called 72 and Sunny. And it was really, it was pre-COVID days. So like you could really overwork people and we were overworked there, like just burning the midnight oil, working 24 seven. That was like a really competitive, crazy place to work at the time. And so people would literally just like quit their job with no job because they needed a break, you know? And so it was like just a common theme at that Place specifically. And anyway, so we were, you know, late 20s, and we said, um, we just started dating, really. And um, my husband or boyfriend at the time was saying, like, let's go just quit our jobs. We have great resumes. Let's go travel for like a year and then we can come back and get jobs. And so at the time, it just seemed like a good idea. It was like, it was kind of a now or never. Proposal mm-hmm. and so we basically quit and for the first time ever we weren't working twenty four seven and so we were on this like epic journey visiting like a different country every week or two and um, we essentially were doing yoga in Indonesia and we essentially wanted the class to be harder like we wanted to sweat more and so we started brainstorming afterwards like how could we have made that class a little bit harder. Um, we landed on the idea of resistance, which exists in wrists and ankle weights, but we kind of were like, why did that product go away? It's, mm. you know, it's a sandbag, old school product that nobody used. All of our like parents used them back in the 80s, but it seems like we should bring this product back into people's lives. And it was actually Max's idea. He was like, what if we make it like more like a bracelet, like a fashionable thing that people would wear. So then really like he sketched it out on a napkin and we kind of just began prototyping and we got back, you know, a year later to the States, got jobs in advertising, but we kept Bala as like a side project. And so we just kept working on the one, the one product, which was Bala Bengals. And we eventually launched it, you know, it garnered some success. And we, we realized there was like a complete white space in the entire industry where the products that you interact with on a daily basis are really underdesigned. designed um, You know, anything from like a foam roller to a yoga mat, dumbbells, like why have they always looked the same since the 80s? So we just felt like we wanted to create a design-led fitness brand but while also improving the functionality of the products you interact with.
0: I really like how you. I don't know. I feel like there's there's something there's something to what you said there about like creating space for the idea to come through. Like you knew that what you were doing wasn't wasn't quite the right fit for that time, and so you took the space, and then this like idea comes to you guys. And I just think that that speaks so much to not necessarily knowing what the next step is, but letting allowing yourself the space to let it to let yourself figure it out.
1: Honestly, yeah. Like I look back on that time and I'm like, this is, this was the first time I'm such a natural workaholic in a way. And so Mm -hmm. I think like, since I was like 16, I was always working. And so Mm -hmm. I never really got the time, the mental bandwidth to like, think of other ideas or things. And so I think giving ourselves that space was really a nice break. And that's like, when we didn't know at the time, but you know, it was a breakthrough because now we work for ourselves. So it was like, instead of going back into advertising um we were we were able to eventually quit our jobs and so i think creating that space is super important
0: when you were kind of getting this idea off the ground how were you funding this was this like funded through your jobs in ad agencies did you guys bring on angel investors what was the go
1: i mean well at the time we were when we were traveling like we had a set amount of money to you know, last us, like it was it was all throughout Asia, so it was cheaper there. I mean, I don't know, we might have had like 20 grand or something to spend for like eight months, like something like mm-hmm. that. Like it was not a lot of money. And so I think really how we funded it is the the prototype itself, I think that was like four thousand dollars. So I think we we said, let's like spend our own money and get that done. And then I think after that, really we we funded the business pretty much on our own the first like 2 years so really what that means is that we only ever invested probably like 10 grand into the business total but we the sales funded our growth and like basically sales funded buying more inventory mm-hmm. and so that's how, and but max kept his job for quite a while like even after he basically quit after we aired on Shark Tank. So we really held on to one of our jobs because in advertising, like we were paid pretty well and he was able to cover our lifestyle, like our lifestyle, our rent and all of that, which allowed us to not pay ourselves on the Bala business so that all the money Bala brought in was like continue to fund the business, more inventory and anything like that. So I think One of the keys was him keeping his job. Well, and I kept my job too for the first year and a half probably. But him Mm -hmm. keeping his job, like holding on as long as he possibly could because it funded our life and then Bala could try to fund itself sort of thing.
0: Okay. I feel like now I see Bala everywhere and I don't know. It just, it feels like from someone who's on the outside, it feels like one day you weren't there and then the next day you were kind of everywhere what What were you doing in those early days when you were being really scrappy and funding it, you know, through sales to get that traction and for make to make it feel like a brand that was so much bigger than it was?
1: I mean, we were i mean, there's a lot there was a lot of faking it till you to till you make it. There's that sort of thing, like a lot of that. It's like we were a team of like me, Max, and my sister, and it was like, oh. Mm-hmm. Let me, introduce you to our PR person, my sister. Let me introduce Charlie. you to my Yes, like, Yes, being Yes. Yeah. Like my sister. It was always like my sister was whatever hat, you know? So I think the faking it till you make, make it for sure. So it's like, if we're going a call on Go- with Goop, it's like, we're not a one person company, you know? So I think there was a bit of that, but then early days, a lot of the strategies we used were like, we would ask ourselves, what would get the most eyeballs on the brand? And for us, that was getting into Uh, wholesale. And so we felt like if we got into free people or goop, people then, since we didn't really have money for our own advertising, it's like, they're going to advertise on our behalf. They're going to send an email blast. They're going to put us on shelf. That's going to garner more eyeballs. So I think we really asked ourselves that. And I think we would also like Partner with like-minded brands to do events that really didn't cost anything. Maybe just product gifting, and you know, try to choose brands that were like a little bit bigger than us, and do giveaways and things like that. A lot of product gifting because you know that's a that's a low cost, and if the influencer likes the product, they'll post about it. So really, just anything that would get more eyeballs on the product with like a very minimal spend. But for us, I think the big ones were wholesale and um, wholesale and gifting.
0: How did the Shark Tank opportunity come about and how far along were you at that point?
1: So Shark Tank, I mean, a little bit of a tangent, but basically we, people always tell you when you have a brand, you should go on Shark Tank. And so I think I was just so in the nature of just like do, 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 and like throwing things at the wall and seeing what's, what's stuck at that point Mm -hmm. and just connecting with anybody I could, reaching out to any retailer, just like trying to make the brand work early days. And so I really just like sent them an email and applied. And then they they hit us up for, I guess it was season 10. We had several calls with the producers. And this was like, I guess, would have been like six months into the business. And then they just said, you're out. And they can't tell you why for legal reasons. So then we were just out of that season. They said, maybe we'll call you next season, but it really felt like a breakup because our hopes Mm. were up and then it just went away. So then flash forward to the next season of casting, they actually did call us and Then I think we were a little further ahead in the casting process, but it was still very intense and like calls every week with the producers, like constantly videoing yourself and like retrying out and never really knowing if you're actually going to get the opportunity to pitch to the Sharks until you're standing up there. And so um, at that point, I think we were a year and a half into the business when we got the opportunity to pitch to the Sharks. And then by the time we closed the deal, and also aired on Shark Tank. It was exactly two years into the business.
0: Oh wow! Okay, very cool. And you mm-hmm. actually did, rate, You're one of the I've, a few founders actually like got a deal on the show. I think. I think I've spoken with a few that have been on there, and they thought that it was great for like publicity, but they didn't actually walk away with a deal. Who did, who ended up investing? Mm-hmm. I thought like this is a great milestone to share.
1: Oh yeah, um, Mark Cuban and Maria Sharapova were such our a good masters. fit, and I wanted that's such a good fit. It's a good fit and. We only found out like the day before that Maria was going to be our guest shark, and I think I was really excited because she's the ultimate ball of babe. She like gets it. She's very fashionable. She's uh-huh. obviously a, a like one of the biggest women athletes in the world. So it was it was just like a perfect pairing. I think they knew so that perfect. when they put us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: Okay, so what um, after Shark Tank? Like, what happened to sales? How were you making the most of that opportunity? talk me through what the impact actually was in the business.
1: So actually we had a call, I think the day before, um, the show with like Mark Cuban's, like, I guess, right-hand guy. And he kind of gave us a little pep talk and he was like, look, like this is going to be the biggest day maybe you'll ever have in terms of like the most people on your site. Like, you know, you're going to have, millions and millions of eyeballs like they're going to be checking out instantly like you're going to have just this crazy boom but basically what he said is like this opportunity is kind of what you make of it. So it's really like everything afterwards. And so Shark Tank Mm -hmm. can't like make or break your brand. It's really like, this is like a day where you're on stage, but like, what are you gonna do afterwards? And so I think that pep talk really helped us like put it into perspective. This isn't like going to make our brand really like, yes, you'll have one day of insane sales and people on your site, but then afterward, it's really what you do with that publicity. So that pep talk was helpful, but it really is crazy. I mean, you have like, you know, more site traffic than you'll ever see. I think we sold out instantly on Amazon on the East Coast airing. And then pretty soon after we were sold out on e-com, like by the weekend, Um, it was actually we had a huge party in L.A. and it was two weeks before the world shut down. So it was like everyone's last party before COVID. (laughs) And it was just like a wild, wild time. And then fitness obviously boomed in COVID. So I think like the combo of those things really, really put the brand on the map. And it was like that year where, you know, the, the growth just like was coming because of, you know, Shark Tank, but then also COVID. So it was like this like double whammy that happened within two weeks of each other. And so that year was just like us keeping up. We only had five people. um, And it was really us trying to like grow up as a brand.
0: Hey, it's Jasmine, and I'm jumping in here to let you know about a very, very special, short time only, all of the salesy words, community offering that we have available for Female Founder World. It is our Business Bestie subscriber membership. And for $9 a month, this is basically how you up level in the female founder world community. We constantly hear from founders on the show that building a network and building a community is the most powerful thing that you can do while you're on this kind of like offbeat entrepreneurial path. And our business Bestie Subscriber membership is the best way to do that. So it's $9 a month. You can cancel Anytime. And we are only taking on new subscribers through to the end of the year. So this is a really limited time. Next year, we may relaunch and offer a similar kind of thing. The price will probably be different. But if you lock in now, you'll be locked in for that $9 a month membership. And basically, it'll give you, first of all, first dibs on all of our free events. So right now, if you try to get to an event in New York, you're probably going to be on a wait list with a few hundred other people. This will bump you right to the front and give you 48 hours of of access to register for an event before anybody else hears about it. You'll also get access to a minimum of one live female founder world AMA every month. So these Ask Me Anything sessions are basically just like scaled mentorship. They're live calls with Different founders and entrepreneurs who are the kind of people that you listen to on the show. They've got a really, really interesting story. They've built something super meaningful and they can answer those questions that you just can't Google. So you'll get access to those live calls every single month. You'll also get a workshop every month, which will be led by either a founder, a subject matter expert that we've handpicked or someone on the FEMA Founder World team. And these are super tactical online sessions that basically teach a skill or a strategy that is really, really useful in business right now. We'll also give you access to our workshop recording library with all of the past sessions. And you'll get access to FEMA Founder World's digital goods library, which is where we keep templates and tools and resources. And and yes, sometimes that's us creating those for you or for example, working with finance or accounting expert to put together a spreadsheet that you might need. But most of the time, these are tools and templates and decks that have been used by actual founders in their businesses successfully. So it might be the exact pitch deck that a founder used to raise millions of dollars. Or it could be the cold email and partnership proposal that somebody put forward that landed them a huge brand collaboration. These are absolutely just hidden gems. They're so, so useful. It's something that's really hard to get access to normally. And you're guaranteed at least one new template or download every single month while you are a Business bestie subscriber. The link is in the show notes and I am so looking forward to seeing you and all of our Business Besties in this new program. I want to talk about distribution for a second because you mentioned Amazon. I know that you've also had like physical stores and pop-ups that are, you know, in New York City. We had an event there, which was amazing. Yeah. How are you thinking about distribution, where Bala is available and how did you like layer in all of those different channels and know when was the right time to do that?
1: I mean honestly early days we really were not that strategic like we were just trying to keep up and we were like oh this retailer reached out let's do it like we were just like Yes, people, and some things didn't work and some things did. And so now we're very strategic. But early days, it was like that was almost our strategy was almost just like say us yes to everything and like try to grow at all costs. And then now we're very strategic into where we go. So, you know, when we are looking at a new retailer at this point, it's like we don't want to just add a new retailer to add a new retailer. Like, are these going to be different eyeballs than our current like customer database? So, We are launching in Target in fall. And and for us, that's like a different customer than like our Saks and Nordstrom customer. You know, we just did a QVC segment because we felt like we have, like that is not necessarily our target market. And I think we wanted to see, could we unlock a new market through QVC? So I think Mm. it's really just about like meeting the customer where they are. That's why we're on Amazon as well is because the customer is shopping on Amazon. And then when we decide any new retailers it's kind of like is this going to get us new new eyeballs and does it really fit within who we are because we have made mistakes in the past where we took you know a million dollar PO from a retailer that was not a fit and like got a lot of the goods returned and it really hurt the business so now at this point we are we really ask ourselves before accepting you know a PO from a retailer like is this the right fit and why are we doing it
0: Okay. I need to understand what happened with the million dollar PO and the product being returned for people who maybe they haven't like been in, you know, they haven't been in a situation like that. What happens and like, how do you avoid that? Because that sounds absolutely terrifying.
1: I mean, it was horrible and it probably could have shut our business down. Yeah. So it could, it could definitely shut your business down. I think what happened was basically COVID was, you know, everybody wanted to get into to fitness, literally every, a book floor. Yeah. like, a furniture store. Like, anybody was like, oh, we want to buy the product. And so... Totally. Home fitness was it. we were just saying yes. Yeah, exactly. So we were just saying yes to everyone. And there was a certain retailer I probably shouldn't name. They're quite large, and they wanted to go big at first. So normally, it's like retailers will do a small PO. Like, I, I don't know, it could be 500 units, a 1,000 units, like a smaller PO to test, depending on how big the retailers. But they... We're going big fast. And I guess at the time we didn't really see that as a red, or red flag or like, should we test the market, make sure it's a fit? Um, we just kind of were like, this is incredible. Let's mm-hmm. do it. And so it was really like a million dollar PO on like first PO sort of thing. And even Mark Cuban warned us at the time, like you guys should like maybe see if it's a fit first, but they wanted the, the goods by holiday. And a few things went wrong in that whole process for us. Like we ended up having to ship the the product took longer and we actually had to ship it after holiday. So a few things also just went wrong. But what we learned is that that particular retailer, the customer was not quite a fit. And so Mm. I don't know if it was a price thing or the way our shelf presence was, but essentially what happened is the product just wasn't moving as fast as they anticipated and you know, it's not really their problem because they have all of the contracts in place so they can just return the goods. Like it's our problem. So what Mm -hmm. happened is we created all of these products specifically for them, not for anyone else. And so we really couldn't sell them. And so we ended up having a lot of product return, ultimately probably like lost money, but we're out a ton of cash as well because we put up the money to buy the inventory and then we're stuck with like, you know, half of it returned. So it was really just like a nightmare to get out of. Um, but luckily we did get out of it. But what it taught me is that, you know, if a big retailer comes knocking, like that's very exciting, but there's no problem in just like saying, Hey, let's cut the PO, like do it to a smaller PO, something you're comfortable with and then you test it and worst case they sell out. And that's great. That's like buzzworthy. Then you ship them more. And it's like, it may not be as many sales at like as quick of a time, but in the long run, it's 100% worth it to make sure it's a market fit. And is that
0: kind of policy pretty standard when you're working with retailers that if it doesn't sell within a certain time frame, you have to buy it back or it's returned?
1: I think with larger retailers mm-hmm. that, you know, they have sharky deals. So yeah, you're the little guy and they're they're like, it's not selling. Here's all this inventory back and here's chargebacks. And, you know, so with larger retailers, like it's kind of like their, their way. What's a chargeback? How does that work? Oh, so a chargeback is, you know, it's quite complicated to ship to some of these large retailers. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with EDI or any of that, but it is quite complicated. And there's like, you know, hundred page manuals and you have to make sure your warehouse knows how to ship to them. And so if you ship incorrectly, and it can be really quite complicated to ship to their different DCs and, like, certain mm-hmm. amounts of products, it's a whole process. And if you mess up, you, get, you can get chargebacks. And so basically, you're already working on pretty thin margins, and then you get a chargeback that, you know, it'll be like, this was mislabeled, $1,000 chargeback. $1,000 chargeback, this was mislabeled, all of a sudden it adds up, eats into your margin. So you really have to make sure that you know exactly how to ship to them because it sounds crazy, but it is very complicated with the big retailers. And sometimes it's like your warehouse's first time shipping to that that company. So you just have to make sure it's perfect. Otherwise, you will get dinged and that really eats into your margin. So then it's kind of like, well, what was the point in that if you barely made anything?
0: Wow, this is so. I feel like this is so important because a lot of people, I think, their all of their hopes pin on getting on in one of these like big retailers or partners. But there is so much more to it than just you get a big PO and then you get money in the bank like sixty or ninety days later. Um, So I feel like that's really good to point out when you're thinking about like a new channel. So after you've you know you've built out this like retailer partnership and distribution strategy, you've also been growing Amazon as a channel, which I feel like is this whole other beast that a lot of people are interested in, but not really sure how to make the most of it. And I'd love to know what's working for mm-hmm. you now as a business and like what worked when you first launched with Amazon.
1: Yeah. Amazon is, is is tricky. And for us, it's it's a necessary, I mean, we do really well. And actually right now, Amazon is our most profitable channel, which is crazy. Like, cause that always oh, wow. flipped. that was flipped, you know, two, three years ago. Um, but essentially I think You want to make sure that your search terms are like highly searched in Amazon. And I think you have to have the right people running your ads um, Mm -hmm. or a highly searchable product, like a very buzzworthy product that you know people are going to then go on Amazon and search for. So then I think early days we didn't run ads on Amazon, but I think during COVID everyone was searching for Bala. So it was like easily found. I think what's most important is like you could like launch on Amazon and just be like, on page 100, no one's ever going to find you. You're never going to get any sales. So you do need to either have extremely buzzworthy products that people are naturally going to search for on Amazon or really good Amazon ads to make sure that you are able to, you know, get up to that first page. Because really, do you scroll past the first or second page on Amazon? Absolutely never. Never, never. especially if, if it's for like a basic product. So, you know, you want to be on that first page. You want to have great advertising on Amazon. There's lots of good agencies that run good ads, but I think that would probably be the most important thing. You need to have like a strategy when you launch, because I'm sure right now, as opposed to like four years ago when we launched on Amazon, it's probably super crowded. There's probably lots of competitors. And I think it's all about getting that ranking so that you're on the first page. Like for example, our wrist weights are on the first page and really high ranking, but our other products that are newer to Amazon, like our yoga mats or our dumbbells, since they're so new, I don't even know what page they're on. Like somebody would have Mm -hmm. to be searching for a Bala to find them. You wouldn't just probably search yoga mat and see ours because there's many cheaper options and brands that have been on there for decades, you know? So I think having that smart strategy on how you're going to get on the first page is super important. And there's lots of agencies that like specialize in that. And you guys are using an agency, it's not in-house? Yeah, we use an agency. It's a very specific type of uh, person that does the Amazon ads.
0: When you say that Amazon's the most profitable channel, is that because of like iOS updates and that's why
1: it's flipped? Yeah. Yeah, it's mainly because of iOS updates. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and it's just so expensive to acquire a customer on your normal D2C these days.
0: So given like this whole landscape has changed now, I'm sure that's like impacted the way that you guys are thinking about marketing. What is what was really working through 2022 and like what are you thinking what are you like doubling down on in 2023 as a strategy for, you know, acquiring and retaining customers?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think 2022 was a really challenging year for a lot of brands. I think it's like mm. 2020 and 2021 were a lot of was a lot of growth and then 2022 was like stabilization and also like people wondering, like shopping behaviors just changed and people are wondering yeah. if there's a recession happening, there's inflation definitely happening, a lot of people being laid off. So 2022 was a more uncertain time where I think brands have to really try a lot of things and see what, what worked. And we had to really pay attention a lot more to our profitability and what we're spending on versus like last year because things were just, everything was working. And so I think what is working for us right now is our affiliate ambassador program um, launched sort of recently, but I think that is a really good strategy for us. I think just straight up gifting, which is like our tried and true from the beginning Mm -hmm. sort of um, thing. Um, PR works really well for us. And I think doubling down on that and doing, we're talking about doing affiliate PR. So we did that in the past and it worked really well, but I think we're gonna starting in 2023 do that as well. Yeah, PR always worked well for us.
0: I want to understand what's happening with the affiliate ambassador program. Are you using like a specific platform to do it? Is it influencers or are these like super fan customers? What does the what does the program look like?
1: Yeah, so we actually have a mix of, you know, influencers, but also since Ball is a fitness brand, like your Pilates instructor might have a thousand followers, but she's teaching people all day long. And she's, yeah. like most people when they're like, oh, I found out about Bala because of my Pilates instructor, you know? So we have instructors as a huge component and they don't have to, they could be micro because they have a great natural following. They teach people all day. We want them using our products. And so I think we have maybe 500 or 600 affiliates at this point. Again, it's a, it's a newer program but essentially they get a code, they get free Bala product, and then they also, they share their code and then people check out with their code. So it's like a Pilates instructor who maybe teaches like 30 people a week, may Mm -hmm. say like, use my code. I want you to get, I want you guys to get this foam roller and these bars for class next week, you know, and then they check out there and it's it's mutually beneficial because then they get paid, I forget the exact commission, it might be 10% or 15%. So they're getting a commission they're getting free product. We're getting the sale. That's essentially our cost to acquire the customer as opposed to like an ad. So I think there's definitely opportunity to blow that up. And I think that, that these days, I mean, brands are having to do a lot of strategies. Like it's not going to be one thing that like makes or or breaks the business. It's going to be 10 things. So it's like yeah, we're still running Facebook ads. And yes, we're still running Google ads, but you know, it's like a well-rounded strategy versus like, it used to be like, my Facebook and Instagram ads kill it. And that's how we acquire our customers. It's like Mm -hmm. nowadays, from what I have experienced and seen with other like founders in the space, it's like, you need like 20 things working for you. And maybe there's not one crazy standout, but they're all like, it's a snowball effect.
0: Yeah, this is what I'm hearing from founders who are, you know, in the trenches like right now, building businesses right now, as opposed to the people who like maybe were building in like 2015 or 2016, is that it has to be this real like true 360 marketing kind of strategy and there's not like one channel that's going to blow up your business or that you can just like double down on and and that's the thing that works it's exactly what you just said it's like all of these like testing new things all of these like new all of these pieces kind of like fitting together for a fully 360 approach definitely When you talk about PR, I know that your in-house PR person, Brooke, who's amazing. Have you, in the early days, were you handling that yourself? When did you bring someone on to do it? Like what's the right time for somebody to be doubling down and investing in press?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, okay. So early days, yes, we were doing everything ourselves. So I would literally reach out to editors. I would like go through a shape magazine and reach out to editors, um, find Mm -hmm. them on Instagram or LinkedIn and like DM them and hope they would like take my product. So, or they would come to us and we would do a story. So essentially that was early days using connections, things like that. And then I think we hired Brooke like a year and a half ago. Um, Prior to that, we did have a PR agency. So I think right when we aired on Shark Tank, which was like Feb of 2020, um shortly after that we actually hired in-house PR just to like handle like mostly like inbound and then also be pitching if we were launching a new product like they're going to pitch it to 100 editors and like cultivate these relationships so and then we said let's do a lot of this stuff is either inbound or or at this point we need like a role for it in house so we found an amazing PR person Brooke and so she does our partnerships and our PR and a lot of stuff she does the affiliate program events like a ton of stuff and and all of it like really like falls under like PR and relationships but it's definitely like more than a full-time role she's she's slammed so I think at a certain point we love Brooke she's the best but (laughs) hi Brooke Oh, she's on? No, 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 Okay, okay, okay. Well, I don't know. Sometimes she's on the podcast. Um, but anyway, so I think eventually it does make sense to um, hire, like, somebody in-house, especially yeah. if you're laddering it up and combining it with other roles that are complementary, like events or ambassador program.
0: The last thing I kind of want to touch on and discuss before we move on to your recommendation is funding. So we know you were on Shark Tank. You obviously got some funding through the show. How else have you been funding the business? When did you decide to bring on external investors? Like, what have you learned through that process?
1: Yeah, I mean, so our only investors are Mark and Maria. Well, right now. So essentially we funding is is very challenging especially because the kind of the more sales you do the more you need money for inventory and marketing and team so we actually we were really bootstrapping the business for a while and even when we did the Mark and Maria deal it still felt bootstrappy because it was like a one time $900,000 mm-hmm. check but then we actually started raising which I think we talked about this but like a couple months ago so we're in we're in the process of raising we have a SPV that's open where we have other really interesting people. And so we have a few other founders and investors that are in our SPV right now that I won't name yet, but that's closing soon. So they're writing smaller checks and they're just going to be, you know, involved in like a strategic way in the business. But then we're also raising for our, you know, we're talking to potential co-lead situation or a lead. Mm -hmm. Um, But right now we're raising $5 million and we're closing probably in January.
0: Okay. That's super exciting. Congratulations. Lots of people talk Mm -hmm. about, you know, getting smaller checks from angels or other founders. What does that, like, what's a smaller check? What does that mean?
1: Yeah. So a small check is like 15 grand to like 200 grand. And I think Mm -hmm. it's like, it's basically when you want to have like, it can be, there's many like vehicles that this can roll up into. But I think what we found is we, we were getting introduced to a lot of interesting people that were, you know, founders of companies that you know, of that have exited, you know, for a large amount and they just have like seen it and, or other investors or celebrities and they want to be involved. And so I think What's interesting there is you can get, you know, 10 checks for $50,000 and have roll this up into an SPV and kind of just like close a separate round with these people. Or they can also, you know, if you get your lead investor, then the lead investor does most of the due diligence. They can say, oh, this is great. Like somebody's investing them. They've done all the research. I'm very interested or a user in this brand let me just kick them a $50,000 check. And then all of a sudden they're now involved in your brand. And I think it's like, it's great to have, you know, the little bit of that, a smaller check, but it's more about like having them thinking about your brand and connecting you to other people. And, Mm. you know, let's say they're like a famous uh, founder that's exited. It's like, Having them always, like, when you launch a new product, you're gifting it to them, they'll likely post. Like, there's a lot of reasons to do it that way. And I think that for us, you know, we do own so uh, such a majority of the business since we only have Mark and Maria at this stage. We thought, let's, some of these interesting people we've been meeting, let's do, uh, let's do a separate uh, roll-up with them and then also do the lead.
0: Natalie, how does someone who comes from, like, this creative advertising background become so well-versed in, in fundraising and, like, scaling a business? What, what have you been do- doing to, like, upskill as Bala has been growing?
1: Yeah, so it's it's basically, like you said, it's learning on the job. And I think, you know, going through a raise and talking to, I don't know, probably 100 investors between my husband and myself, uh, you learn the language. And there's some things that we're looking at each other, like, you know, a couple months ago, what are they talking about? We don't know the language. What does this mean? What does that mean? And you really learn it. So I think really like putting yourself out there, you learn it. And I think that has been true since the beginning. So early days when we literally had to do everything, it was like, Getting on Amazon, for example, is is not easy. Like it's a a whole platform, and so I was I was just watching like thirty minute tutorials on how to like get my catalog on Amazon and then how to ship there. And it's it's these things are not not easy. They're kind of like techy and complicated on the back end. So it's really just. But then I went through the process, and now not that I'm an expert in it, but now I know like the back end of Amazon. So I just think it's like learning on the job, but also like having the mindset where you are going to learn on the job and you're like, every day I'm going to learn something new. And honestly, at this stage, it's like, I don't feel embarrassed to ask if somebody says something on a call and I'm like, sorry, what does that acronym stand for? You know? And so I think really just, or Google it and try to ask around and talk to a lot of like other founders and like listen to, other like founder resources, I think all of that really like adds up, and you're really expanding your brain daily on the job.
0: I want to like kind of close the loop and come full circle from when we first started the conversation, and you're saying like you you know you started you started with that around four thousand dollars in savings, and then put in another another few thousand, and you're kind of bootstrapping for so long. Are there any milestones that you can share to help people understand? like what you've built Baler into and, and, you know, how far along the brand has really come. Milestones or
1: like, like elaborate? What do you like?
0: Yeah. So like some people have shared like growth milestones or big stockists they've landed in or revenue milestones mm. or just, just things that you, when you look back at yeah. the business, you're like, wow, we did that.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, let's see. I mean, I think getting into Target this year and fall in, right now we're on job trip, but whenever we actually are in store, I feel like that will be a huge milestone. I think early days, whenever the first time we got in a magazine and it was like in the press and it was in shape magazine, I think that was like Mm. huge. I mean, we grew from like $200,000 our first like six months to 2 million to then 16 million the next year. So I think that those first like three years essentially was like really wild growth wow. for us. Um, but I think, yeah, every time, yeah, that was, but that was like the COVID, that was the COVID boom. So it really like helped us help put us on the map. Um, so that's definitely, those were huge milestones, but I think still every time you get in like a vogue roundup or like a women's wear daily, like it's, it's a milestone, you know, you have to sit back and say, okay, this is cool. I'm in the hustle and bustle and times are really tough at, you know, on the daily, but, um, you got to sit back and say, okay, that that's a cool milestone.
0: (laughs) Natalie, that is amazing to hear. And thank you so much for coming on the show and for telling us how you've been, you know, driving all of that growth. It's very, very cool to see. I'm a big fan of you and a big fan of Bala.
1: Yay. This was great. Thank you for having me.
0: Isn't Natalie amazing? I just love chatting with her. Like she's been on two panels for Female Founder World. We hosted an event in her Bala store in New York City, and now she's on the podcast like what an amazing supporter of female founders. We just love her. If you did enjoy the show, drop us a five-star review. I feel like I know I'm constantly asking and reminding, but I know that there are thousands of listeners who haven't done that yet and it is just so important. It helps us rise up in the podcast rankings. That helps us get seen by new people. That helps me find new sponsors for the show. And that means that we can be well-resourced to create more events, to create more content, and obviously more podcast episodes for you as well. All right.
1: Thanks everyone. I'll chat with you when we hit up the next episode.